In the summer, we usually write, come to midweek service, we have air conditioning. Right. <laughs> this morning, come to church, we have heat. Of course, most everybody has heat, I hope. Amen? So, um, Pastor Matt, along with most of the rest of the body this morning, are is traveling to see family for the, uh, the Thanksgiving holiday. So pray for him and Traveling Mercies as, uh, as they drive back today. And of course, for everybody else in our church that's out visiting um, as we, uh, as we finish up a wonderful Thanksgiving and roll right quickly into Christmas. Amen? Amen? Fabulous, fabulous time of year. Great opportunities to minister and to witness. So um, I just think it's been such a tremendous blessing these past few weeks, having finished up a great study in the book of Romans, just to start looking again at the Lord Jesus and some of his encounters that are recorded for us in the Gospels and the way, as Pastor Matt has been sharing with us, just the way that Jesus ministered to individuals with that perfect balance of grace and truth. And we've looked at the woman at the well and, of course, Nicodemus. And then last week, we looked at the lawyer and the story of the Good Samaritan. And again, each of these interactions, we watch just kind of amazed at the way Jesus so perfectly could mix the difficult truth with such loving grace. And he never compromised one. He never overemphasized the other. And so this morning, uh, I'd like to look together at one of my very favorite Jesus moments, I think, that's recorded for us in the scriptures. And it's one that, that I truly believe is full of both grace and truth. And so if you turn with me to John chapter 5, I want to look this morning um, maybe even again, I think I may have actually looked at this passage here with you before, but, um, but I want to look at it uh, again. It's a very familiar story. It's the healing of the paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda. Because I believe that, you know, as we work our way through just the first nine verses of this great chapter and this account really of what was one of the, the early miracles of Jesus, I just believe that we're going to be both challenged and I think we're going to be really encouraged by the words here that he speaks in the midst of this miracle. So let's just pray and ask that the Lord would bless uh, this time and minister to us. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to be here, Lord, as we've spent the week celebrating um, with family. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here with our church family, Lord, with the body of Christ. Lord, we thank you for the way that you've um, baptized each one of us here into this body, Lord, and we thank you for um, the life that we share, Lord, and united in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning that your spirit would be our teacher, that he would minister truth to us, Lord, as we look uh, at the example of your son. Father, we pray this and we ask this in his holy name. Amen. You know, God's grace is kind of a tricky business, isn't it? Because we all want it, we all know that we need it, and yet sometimes it's kind of hard for us to accept, right? And we know theologically, we know intellectually that we can't save ourselves, right? We know that God won't, in fact, save anybody that's out there trying to earn their way to salvation. And yet instead, what the scriptures tell us is that he saves those who humbly receive his grace as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. And as we look this morning at the, what is a well-known miracle that's performed by Jesus, we're going to see this truth played out. And we're going to see just the glorious gift of grace in operation as the Lord saves sinners. But we'll notice also that Jesus challenges us as he's going to challenge this man this morning to examine our hearts. Now, if we were to be studying through John's whole gospel account, we would note that the first two miracles that Jesus performed were kind of private in nature. You remember in, in chapter 2, there was the turning of the water into wine at the, uh, the wedding there in Cana. And you remember that it was only the disciples and the servants who actually knew what had taken place. And then in chapter 4, we see the healing of the nobleman's son. And again, it was only the servants and it was only the nobleman's family who actually learned about this tremendous authority that Jesus had over uh, you know, the physical uh, realm. And yet this morning, and this is this second, uh, this miracle that's recorded here in John chapter 5, it was not only a public miracle, 
but specifically we see that it was performed on the Sabbath day, right? To, to challenge these convictions of the religious leaders. And I think it's kind of interesting, uh, ironically, because as public as this miracle was, I think that there's such a very private and there's an essentially um, personal application, right? Not only for those who don't yet know Jesus as their savior, but especially, I think, and specifically for those of us who already do call him Lord. Now, just as a refresher for your life of Jesus timeline, if we were looking chronologically, right, at his public ministry, back in chapter two, we saw him go up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And then in Jerusalem, we see he performed these miracles. He met privately with Nicodemus. Remember, we looked at that just a couple weeks back. After the feast was over, Jesus went off to minister for a while in Judea. And you remember there was this little controversy that had started because Jesus was starting to draw more people than John the Baptist. And so to avoid the controversy and also probably to avoid a potential run-in with these religious leaders, we saw that Jesus went up north. And he went through Samaria, where a couple weeks ago we saw he met with the woman at the well, right? Many Samaritans, as a result of that, came to believe in Jesus and his ministry. Now, from Samaria, we know that Jesus went even further north, up into the Galilee. That's where he healed the nobleman's son. And it's then that we read here in verse 1, of our text today. So in verse one of John chapter five, it says that after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, we don't exactly know what feast this was. It was probably one of those three major feasts that all of the able-bodied Jewish males were still required to attend at Jerusalem. There was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? That's the one that begins with Passover. Then there's the Feast of First Fruits, right? It's at Pentecost. And then there's that final Feast of the Ingathering, right? Called the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And the point is, we don't really know because it's probably not really important which feast it was, except we're noting here that Jesus is still acting in obedience, right, to the existing Mosaic law, and he's headed up toward Jerusalem with all of the rest of the men of Israel. And yet, we'll see that, you know, Jesus' main purpose for going up to Jerusalem wasn't just to observe this religious feast, was it? But his his main purpose was to heal this man and then to use this miracle as the basis for a a tremendous message that he would deliver to the people. Because look what we read in verse 2. It says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Now if you travel to Jerusalem and you visit St. Anne's Church, you see that right next to it there's this deep excavation that has actually kind of relatively recently revealed this ancient pool of Bethesda. And what's interesting about that is that for years, critics doubted that this place even existed. Until 1888, there was an archaeologist who was digging near the site of this kind of crusade period church and uncovered these two adjacent pools of water that would have served that area in the ancient times. And so the, the excavations of this pool, which is sort of up in the, the northeast corner of what they call the old city in Jerusalem, they uncovered these five porticos, right? Or these kind of covered porches. And they, were, they were surrounding the pool. And of course, archaeology once again just confirming for us the, the exact accuracy of the description that we find here in the scriptures given by John. So there are these porches. Verse 3, it says that in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, Apparently, according to local tradition, this pool had some sort of special supernatural healing 
properties, right? It says there an angel would stir the waters, and then the first one to make it down into the waters would be healed. Now, that is a very neat, neat story. And yet, the Bible nowhere would support this kind of a strange superstition, right? A a situation, if you think about it, would be almost cruel, right? For so many sick people, it's kind of like saying, hey, the first one of you folks with this debilitating disability, the first one of you guys that can drag yourself down here wins the prize. I don't think so, right? And you say, well, but doesn't the text say that an angel came down and stirred up the waters? And doesn't it say that people did get healed? Well, of course it does. We just read it together, right? But I believe this is sort of a a quote. See, according to the, the experts, right, the Greek language folks, the Greek language doesn't actually have quotation marks. And yet if it did, that this phrase would probably be enclosed in them to, to point out that it's sort of a reference to what was the conventional wisdom of the day. Further, if you look at that, the Greek word that's actually translated into pool there in verse 4, it's kolomberth or bethra, which is a very precise term that literally means a deep pool from underneath that comes bubbling. So it would seem linguistically, right, as well as theologically, that this stirring of the water wasn't due to some kind of a, you know, like a cosmic contest for who could get healed, but rather it was this occasional eruption of some kind of an underground spring, or maybe even it was just the wind kind of as it wafted across the pool, whatever it was. There was something that kept all of these people who were in need of healing, kept them hanging around here, right? Kept them hoping for a cure. And maybe at least it was the hope of healing. And maybe God even honored that. Maybe he did honor that as a release of faith and provide healing. Maybe it was just this hopeful legend, but there were these people that came and that stayed simply out of a sense of kind of a hopeless desperation. And so it says there that there were a great multitude of sick people, right? People that were sick, blind, lame, paralyzed, and they were all just there desperately waiting for this miracle cure. What a perfect picture, I'm afraid, of the unsaved world today, isn't it? Right? Sick, literally it means impotent, right? It means weak, feeble, without strength, without power, right? Blind to spiritual realities, lame, right? Unable to walk correctly in the world, paralyzed, right? Withering, kind of waiting for something to happen, right? And all of these people without hope. And you just think about, you know, what incredible havoc sin has just wreaked in this world, you know? And especially amongst God's jewel of creation amongst mankind, right? Blind, lame, paralyzed. We could use that to describe every culture globally, right? And, and every one of us personally apart from Jesus Christ, right? If, if we're not reborn, if the spirit of Christ does not dwell in us, we can't see and we won't walk uprightly. Now, before this morning, we let ourselves off the hook thinking, well, I'm saved, so that doesn't describe me anymore, right? <laughs> I'm going to submit to you on this chilly morning <laughs> that I think it's possible for us, even as believers, to live in seemingly this same kind of a condition. And maybe there's some of you that know, just as I know, what I'm talking about here. We're, we can be overtaken, can't we, by the cares and the concerns of the world, the way that Jesus warned. We can be choked right, right that, by that sprouting root of bitterness, maybe, that we've let grow in our hearts, like Paul cautions us against. And what happens is we find ourselves living this all but faithless life of defeat, right, and not of victory. We find ourselves sort of sick, and blind, and lame, and and paralyzed. And what's worse is sometimes we do it so often in this wonderfully false sense of comfort, don't we? Because notice with me in the text, the people here that were laying by the pool, 
It says we're doing it sheltered and covered by all of these wonderful porches, right? Seemingly, they were almost being made comfortable and content in the midst of their misery, but they weren't being healed. And I think for us, how adept we can be at times in constructing these comfortable little porches under which we can lay and kind of wallow in our own self-pity, right? We're, we think we know that things maybe could or should be getting better or doing better if we would just try a little bit harder, right? And again, such a perfect picture of that truth that sometimes humans' best efforts at self-improvement, indeed, it can shelter people with, with good values and with disciplines, but it can't save them, can it? And it can't heal us. And though, you know, so many are so quick to rush into some report of a new thing that'll work, right? We see them in our social media feeds every day. Here's the five successful things that, you know, that, that successful people do every morning. Or I love the one where it says, you know, this man revolutionized his life by doing this one thing. And of course, you have to click there to find out what, and who doesn't click, right? Tell me you don't click. You want the one thing, don't you? Right, but all of this, it, it just gives people this false sense of hope that, that we're going to get there eventually if we just try harder. But isn't that exactly what man's way always says? It always says, be the first, be the best, try harder, you know, fight your way to the top. It says, you know, God helps those who help themselves, which is, by the way, not in the Bible. Okay, stop looking for it, it's not there. Because in principle... That kind of thinking, that's calling for man to reach up to God instead of allowing God to reach down to sinful man and lift him up the way the Bible teaches that he wants to do. You know, think it through. You've got these, these poor, pathetic people. If they could just get into the water when the angel came, they could be healed. And yet, they completely lacked the power and the ability to do that. Right? So like any unsaved person today, if they could just live up to God's perfect standard, right, they'd be saved. And yet, none of us are, are able to do that. But as I said before, I think it's also like many of us here this morning, you know, we could think if we could just be doing a little bit better, if we could just, you know, what do they say, pull yourselves up by our, by our bootstraps, then we could be healed, right? And yet... We are absolutely unable to do that. So what hope do we have, right? Well, we have Bethesda, don't we? And that, that Hebrew name Bethesda, it, in the scriptures you see it spelled various ways. You see people assigning different meanings to it. Some people just simply say that it means the place of two outpourings, which archaeologically would be accurate, right? There are these two pools. And yet most of the Greek language scholars conclude that instead it means house of mercy, right? Or it means house of grace, which of course is more fitting, uh, you know, not only theologically here, but certainly I think experientially because it's only here at Bethesda by God's grace that we can possibly be healed of the affliction of this sin. And that's just what this one sick individual is about to find out personally. Because we read now in verse 5, it says that a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Right. So here it says that Jesus saw this multitude of sick people and yet his attention was drawn to one. Right? This particular man whose specific illness John doesn't tell us. All he tells us is that he'd been sick with it for 38 long years. And so we're thinking, well, that's not very fair. Why was he sick? You know, inquiring minds want to know. And yet, as I think about it, I kind of like that. I mean, I don't like the fact that he was sick. I like the fact that the Holy Spirit doesn't specifically, in fact, I believe the Holy Spirit chooses specifically not to tell us exactly what he was sick with. Because then it allows us, doesn't it, to identify with him a little bit more easily. Right? So we might simply say, I think we could, could correctly conclude that he was sick 
right? Just like we're all sick with that terminal disease of sin, right? I think this detail was left out purposely, right? And, and why do I think that? Because it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter what the sickness is, right? In the very same way, you and I are sinners. It doesn't matter what we've struggled with in the past. It doesn't even matter what we're struggling with in the present. We all have the same sin struggle. And unfortunately, I think as believers, so often we can get so caught up in evaluating or comparing ourselves with one another, as if somehow the Lord holds some of us up in higher esteem because the sins that we're struggling with, well, they're not quite as bad as the thing over there that that person is dealing with. You look at the faults and the the frailties, the failures of the men and women that are in the pages of the scriptures. And what we see so often is that the ones that the Lord used most mightily were the ones whose sins were the most serious, don't we? And I think it's quite possibly because they were the ones who most easily recognized the tremendous need that they had. And the amazing grace that God had and the healing power that he was releasing in their lives. We, we think about the woman who would later come and anoint Jesus um, with her oil. And, and it talks about the, her tears falling and, and she's drying his feet with her beautiful hair. And Jesus said that her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. And he says, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Right, so the specific sin of this sick man, maybe it's an interesting detail, but it's really not important. But here's something I do think is important, and it, it's interesting, right? And I think it's not by chance. Notice that John specifically tells us that the man has been ill for how long? It says 38 years. And I think that's important because I think that the Lord is painting for us not only this very personal or maybe this universal picture, but I think he's also painting a scriptural picture for us. If you think back to Deuteronomy chapter 2, right, which is a passage that speaks kind of in summary of all the wandering that the Jews did in the wilderness, Moses writes this in verse 14. He says, at the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zered was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, just at the Lord, just as the Lord had sworn to them. Coincidence? I don't think so, right? Rather, I think that in this one infirmed man, right, universally, we have this beautiful picture specifically of the Jewish nation, right, that had wandered in the wilderness for 30 eight years. It's the only other time in the scriptures that 38 is mentioned, right? And we know that spiritually speaking at this point in their history, that Israel was a nation of impotent, powerless people, right? They were waiting kind of hopelessly for something to finally happen. Remember, this is just at the tail end of them enduring 400 years of silence since the Lord last spoke to them. And for you Bible students, right, some people see in this story that those five porches, right, those, those porticos, those coverings speak to us of the Pentateuch, right, those first five books of Moses, right, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and those picture for us the law. Because you see here the Jews, they had run for shelter under it. They wanted to be covered by it but they would never be healed through it because, of course, there's no mercy in the law. There's only judgment, isn't there, for failure to keep it. There's also, you you know, you could make a case chronologically that Jewish has most likely, Jesus had come to this with the rest of the Jewish men. Most likely it is the Feast of Pentecost, which is the celebration of the giving of the law. Hebrew roots people, good for you. Remember also in this picture, not by coincidence, John tells us that this pool was located by the sheep gate, which of course the sheep gate speaks to us of sacrifice because it was this specific gate that they would bring in the sheep 
to be offered in the temple, right? That's what their sin demanded. That's what the law provided. So now think about it. It's just, it's here, just inside the sheep gate, right next to the temple mount, beside the pool at the house of grace, that here Jesus stands and his gaze is fixed on the healing of this one sick man because the Lamb of God had to die before God's grace could be poured out on desperate sinners like each and every one of us here this morning. Verse 6, it says that when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Now, what does grace really mean? Right? Simply, it means kindness to those who are undeserving. And so here, Jesus is extending an offer of healing to this man who was without hope, and the man had done absolutely nothing to seek it out. That's grace. And yet, notice that he, Jesus first kind of injects this health, healthy dose of truth into the conversation by asking, do you want to be made well? Now, that may sound like a strange question to a guy that's been sick for 38 years, right? Wasting away on this mat, waiting for a miracle. And it's interesting, some scholars don't think that Jesus was really questioning the man at all. But the more time that I've spent with this passage, the more convinced I am that that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And here's why I think that. First of all, Jesus usually doesn't ask stupid questions, does he? Right? But instead, he has this tendency, of course, to say just what it is that people need to hear. Right? He knows the hearts of men. And so he knew that not every sick person wants to be healed. Now, is it possible that this man has been actually, strangely satisfied with not being healthy? Now, I know that I'm at the risk of kind of treading on some dangerous ground here this morning, but sometimes I think that the problem with the possibility of complete healing is that we really don't want to get well. And here's what I mean. Remember at times as a kid when you would stay home from school because you were sick and how you got to that point where you were kind of feeling a little bit better, but you weren't quite ready to go back to school. And remember wishing you could just be sick another day or two, because remember all of the benefits that come from being sick, right? Remember all the attention and the pampering and the concern of others, so now we translate that to now, and, and what about with our emotional heartaches, right, our illnesses? Are we always really ready to give those things up? Are we really ready to stop kind of hanging on to some of those hurts? You know, sometimes I'm afraid that we can actually enjoy our bitterness and our anger, mainly because we don't think that that other person should get off the hook quite that easily, right? Right? Sometimes we can kind of even enjoy being miserable or mad at somebody. And the reason I say that is because if we didn't somehow enjoy it, then we wouldn't keep doing it, would we? But there's something strangely satisfying, isn't there, about that? And so with human nature being what it is, right, with all that being said, I believe this is an entirely fair question. Do you want to be made well? And that's a hard truth but I think it's the one with which the Son of God would have each one of us wrestle in our hearts. So much of our, our prayer before the Lord, I think, is hampered because we have so little idea, so much of the time, what it is that we really want. Sometimes it, it, it is very possible that we don't really want things to change in our lives at all, simply because we're afraid of what? We're afraid of the unknown. Because as bad as our current situation might be, at least we're familiar with it, aren't we? And, and we know what to expect, and there's no surprises. 
one commentator that I read pointed out that an Eastern beggar would often lose a good living by being cured of his disease. And so for us, I think sometimes we can be more comfortable, certainly we can be more complacent in our current misery than in taking the steps we actually needed to to be free of it. I read a funny story. I guess in 1933 there was a small order of these Franciscan nuns in Prague that decided they needed to subsidize their convent so they opened the downstairs of their facility as a hotel. Now, formerly, this had been an underground detention center used by the communists to imprison and torture their enemies. But for just $33 a night, you could lodge luxuriously in a former prison cell. And it actually said that they had worked hard in this hotel to kind of achieve this middle ground between comfort and yet authenticity. And the point is that I think sometimes so many today are just looking for that same thing. They're looking for a comfortable prison cell in which they can just continue to languish there in their misery. And maybe even for some of us, this morning, even though we might not realize it, maybe we're just enjoying our illness or our addiction or our indulgence or our secret entirely too much to really allow, allow the Lord to heal us of it. So forget about the man for a minute, right? But let's take a moment this morning before the Lord. What is it this morning that you need healing from? What is it that has left you, that, that leaves me in this sinful, sickened state, maybe for years and years and years? Maybe, is it, a, is it one of these clear-cut kind of life-controlling issues like drugs or, or pornography or alcohol? Or, or maybe it's something somewhere a bit below the surface. Right? Maybe it is that, that self-indulgence or anger or there's unforgiveness or there's bitterness or there's this sense of self-pity. You know, so whatever it is that, that's your unique or my unique, you know, unnamed infirmity is, we need to be honest about it, right? Before the Lord, with him, with us, and we need to be confident that God's grace can cover it, can't he? And he can heal and he can restore if that's what we really want. That he can heal and restore us of this thing or of that issue or of this other problem in our lives. But we need to know that before Jesus is going to graciously deliver and heal us, he's going to truthfully ask us, do you want to be made well? In verse 7 it says that the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Now, does this seem like kind of an odd answer to you? Wouldn't we think that, that this man would have responded with some kind of an enthusiastic, Yes, I want to be healed. But instead, he starts to give these excuses, and I bet he doesn't even realize that he's doing it. I bet that he'd been in this sad condition for so long that I think that his will was just as paralyzed as his body was. And in, in, I think in this odd answer, the man kind of reveals these flaws in his thinking, right? Basically, what he's saying is, look, wanting to get well isn't my problem. My problem is, what, there's no one to help me. Everybody's abandoned me, right? It's, it's their fault. There's nothing that I can do. Does that sound familiar? Of course it does, doesn't it? Because that sort of that victim mentality, that entitlement mentality in our culture today is just epidemic, and instead of recognizing our own sin, instead of recognizing our own deep inner need, you know, everyone is blaming their particular condition on someone or something besides themselves. Right? I'm abusive because I was abused. I'm an alcoholic because 
I grew up in a dysfunctional family, right? No one ever esteemed my self-esteem, so I've never been able to be successful. And these things are so often 100% true. And these things are absolutely valid. Please don't mishear me. These things are all very real, and they are sometimes clinical, and they are always crippling issues. And they can wreak incredible havoc for so many years in the lives of people individually and in families collectively. And there's no excusing the way that people are mistreated. However, when we continue and we're, we shift our human responsibility off of ourselves and onto others, that is nothing more than a deceptive and a deadly strategy straight from the pit of hell. Now, why do I say that? Because it's as old as time itself, isn't it? It's been going on since back in the garden, right? God asks Adam, Adam, why did you eat from the tree? And what does Adam say? It's not my fault, right? You gave me this woman. She's the one that gave me the fruit. And then what does Eve say? Hey, hubby, it's not my fault. The serpent, right, deceived me. This pass the blame right along. But the scriptures tell us what? That in Proverbs 28, it says that he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And then in Psalm 32, it says that I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So it's only after confession right, that we experience forgiveness. And that failure to understand and accept our personal responsibility, that's often the very thing that's going to keep us in bondage, right? Keep us from breaking through uh, out of that, even if we wanted to be free. So the man was saying wanting to get well wasn't his problem, right? He says he just didn't have the help he needed. But he was looking for the help in the wrong place, wasn't he? He was looking to men, when he needed to be looking to God, right? He says, I have no man. But isn't it true that even if a dozen men had been there to help him, they could not do what Jesus ultimately did, right? So whether it's a lost sinner or a paralyzed believer, they don't need help. They need healing, right? Again, another author wrote that the sick man does what we nearly all do, he limits God's help to his own ideas and does not dare promise himself more than he conceives in his mind. There was a great book written years ago by J.B. Phillips, and the, the title of the book was Your God is Too Small. And for so many of us, we create this small God in our heads, and then we limit him by whatever this little box is that we've tried to fit him in. And then we expect our small God to only operate in the small ways that we have somehow allowed for him. But with Jesus, right, rarely does he deliver what we expect. Instead, we see in verse 8 that Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus doesn't address any of the man's excuses. Jesus tells him it doesn't have anything to do with anyone else, right? It doesn't have anything to do with having someone drag you into the pool. Jesus asks the man to get up by himself. Now, in case you missed it, here's another heavy dose of truth, right? Absolutely, there's no question. God has designed us as Christians, to be people of community, right? To, to function, to draw strength, to be encouraged, to encourage one another. It's a, such an important part of our discipleship and of life in the body. But what's equally important, not only for you, but certainly for me, is to recognize that there comes a point in each one of our struggles when it's just Jesus and you. It's just Jesus and me. And God can and he does use other people in our lives to bring healing, but ultimately God wants to do it, right? God wants to finally bring restoration and provide wholeness and he wants to do it by himself, just you and just him, 
There are wonderful, godly individuals in the body of Christ, in this very church, and God will place them strategically in our paths as examples to us and as encouragement for us. But we can so easily cheat ourselves out of God's full blessings because we're looking for them to come through another person. Right? In Psalms 34, it says, I sought the Lord and he heard me and my friend delivered me from all my fears. Uh, That's not in your translation? Right? I sought the Lord, he heard me and... He delivered me from all my fears. So I want to encourage you, surround yourselves with brothers and sisters, right, who can give good counsel and who can be great encouragement, but know that it ultimately is going to come down to just you and Jesus, right? It's going to come down to the things that he is speaking to each of us personally and directly. And here, what he speaks to this guy in the authority of a command He tells him to get up and walk. Now, what must this man have been thinking? Arise, but you know I can't get up. Don't you know I've been like this for too long? There's no way that I could do that. Now, I like that probably because it ministers to me personally. Absolutely, Jesus is asking this man to do something that he knew was impossible. See, the reality is that God helps those who can't help themselves, doesn't he? Right? That's the grace of our God, right? Because he does for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And oftentimes I think that, that you know, for, for your healing and deliverance or for my healing and deliverance, Jesus is doing the exact same thing. He's seemingly demanding something specific from us that is impossible, and he's doing it in truth. Right? Are, are you addicted to something? Well, Jesus is saying, look, rise above it. Stop it. Don't do that thing anymore. Are you here this morning and you're, you're tied up in bitterness and unforgiveness? Well, Jesus is saying, hey, rise above that. Forgive that person and let it go. Are you here this morning and you're wrapped up in this paralyzing self-pity? I think Jesus would say, look, rise above it. Don't give in to it and move on from that. And, and yet I think what's beautiful here is that even in these authoritative demands that Jesus can make of us, we know it's him, don't we? Because we know his voice. And we can hear his heart and his tenderness and his compassion even in these commands. And yes, I I do understand and I do agree that all of this is impossible on our own. But if we really want to be healed, we've got to step out and we've got to start to obey the things that Jesus, the hard truths that Jesus is really telling us to do. Right? Luke 18, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. He's not asking you to do anything that he's not willing to give you the power to do, right? I can do how many things through Christ who strengthens me? All things, Paul said. And it's just here with this commandment to arise comes the empowerment to arise. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me even when he asks us to do something that's difficult. And I love the very next thing he tells this guy, right? Another healthy serving of truth. He says what there? He says, take up your bed. In other words, don't leave your mat there because you're not going to need it anymore. Amen? But what, if, but what if the healing's not complete? What if it doesn't take? What if it doesn't last? I should just leave this here to save my spot, Right? Jesus tells us, he says, take up your bed because he doesn't want us to make provision for our future failure, does he? Years ago, I was counseling a dear brother in the church about some of the issues in his life. And, and at the end of our time together, he prayed, Lord, he said, please heal me from my addiction to these cigarettes. I don't want to smoke anymore. He said, please deliver me from this. And then so at the, when our time together was done and he was leaving, I said to him casually and yet 
pointedly as I can do. I said, hey, why don't you leave that pack of cigarettes here with me and I'll throw those away for you. Just trying to help a brother out, right? And I'll never forget, he looks at me and he's, sorry. He looked at me and he said, but pastor, if I give these to you, then I'll probably just need to buy another pack in the morning and I'm a little short on cash right now. Because he was already planning to fail, right? He'd already kind of left his bed set up for the next morning. So don't keep those sites bookmarked on your computer in case you get that craving again. And don't keep that bottle tucked away in the back of the closet in case you might need a sip. And don't keep his cell number because nobody else is calling you and and don't keep kind of watering and nurturing that root of bitterness just in case they try to hurt you again, right? Whatever area it is that you're personally battling some kind of of a life controlling weakness, don't make provision to fail again. Because Jesus says, arise, he says, take up your bed and what's the last thing he says to him? Walk. Right? The, the man doesn't need somebody to take him down to the pool. He doesn't need somebody to, to hold his hand and to guide him along the way. Jesus says he's just supposed to start to walk. Right? One of my favorite verses in the scriptures, Paul wrote to the Colossians, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. There's such a wonderful truth. I think there's a, a beautiful image here, especially as we connect that to our text today. Each of us received the Lord Jesus by grace. So then how are we supposed to be walking with him now? By grace. It, it's profoundly simple, right? Jesus has told you, Jesus has commanded me to walk. And so it comes right down once again to just me and God and his grace operating in my life. There's a story, I don't know if it's true, most of these stories aren't true, but that there was a pastor sitting in a college coffee shop and he saw this college student come in and he thought he'd strike up a conversation and he says, hey, are you spiritually ready for the temptations that you're going to face here in college? And the kid said, well, I don't have a problem with temptation. I have a strong willpower. And the pastor took a pencil from the table that the kid was writing with and he said, what if I could say to you, that I can make this pencil stand up right here on this book. And the, the kid said, well, I'll believe it when I see it, but I don't think you can do it. And the pastor said, look, I'm doing it right now. He said, yeah, but you didn't tell me you'd be holding the pencil up with your hand. And the pastor said, I didn't have to tell you. Have you ever seen a pencil stand up on its own without somebody holding it? And so the pastor let go of the pencil and it falls over. And he explains, look, the only reason that we stand because God's holding us up with his hand. The Lord continuously, he consistently upholds each one of us by the power of his grace. And if he were to remove his hand, we would immediately fall. And, and he upholds us, especially in these different areas of personal struggle and failure. Truly, my... <laughs> Potentially, this is my life verse, right? 2 Corinthians 12, Jesus makes this precious promise to the Apostle Paul that applies to us too when he says that my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Think about it. His strength coupled with our weakness is the perfect combination, right? Let's let the Lord bring what he has. Let's bring what we have and see the way that there, he says, perfected by one another. Right? Just as no one could ever expect this pencil to stand up on a book on its own, no Christian can be expected to stand except in the grace of God. And this is this paramount principle to remember in terms of our victorious Christian living. We can't perfect in the flesh 
what was begun in the spirit. Therefore, just as we received Jesus by grace, we need to walk in him now in the very same way. It's a daily choice, right? The lame man had a choice to make. He could either obey the word or he could argue that the word wouldn't work for him. But of course, it's been well said that God's words make the impossible possible for the believer. Verse 9 says, And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. So just like the raising of Lazarus from the dead, right? It was Jesus' word alone that accomplished his will. The man only needed to believe and respond. Think about how foolish it would have been for the man to start arguing here. You know, thanks Jesus, but I'm not really healed. You just think that I'm healed. I'm not really healed, so I'm just going to stay down here on this mat by the pool in case I might fall over, right, if I stand up. Or better yet, think how foolish it would be if Lazarus, when Jesus had commanded him from inside the tomb to come forth, that Lazarus had yelled back, I can't do that, Jesus. Don't you know I'm dead in here? (laughs) Well, it's funny, but it's it's us, isn't it? Right? The Lord had healed him, and he, he heals us through the power of his spoken word. In truth, He had commanded the man to do the very thing he was incapable of doing, but in this same command was the grace for him to be able to actually do it. And the cure was immediate. Right? The word of God is what? It's living and it's powerful, Hebrews 4.12. And what an illustration this text is of our conversion. Right? When, when people simply obey his command to believe, God works in and through his word and the cure is immediate. Right, Salvation comes through faith. But it's also such an important illustration for us here this morning of our own continued healing, isn't it? When we simply obey his command to walk, and we watch the Lord work in and work through his word, and the cure is imminent, right? It's right there. And so let me encourage you today. The Lord Jesus is able to give grace, and he's able to bring healing and to bring restoration in those deep, deep areas of hurt and of pain or of chronic failure in our lives. He just needs to first confront us with truth, doesn't he? Do you want to be made well? And are you really ready to take up your bed and to walk? Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the way that you do challenge us, Father, but you don't challenge us beyond what your grace can provide for us. And so, Father, I pray that we'd be encouraged this morning, Lord, at not only your ability, but your desire um, to work in us, Lord, to, to provide that, um, that healing, Lord, whatever it is that, that each one of us individually is, is struggling with here this morning, Lord. I, I pray that you would help us to be encouraged, um, Lord, that just as this paralyzed man, that you desire to challenge us and to have a stand and to walk according to your grace. And so, Father, we do thank you and we do praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.